Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today Paul Mitchell from the Canadian Forces College joins us from Helsinki, Finland, with a look at this week's budget and Canada's defence commitments abroad. Janet Music is a researcher at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax. She has a lot to say about the delicate balance between grocery store profits and food security. Alan Harmon is the BC Chair of the Directors Guild of Canada. Alan will tell us why 92% of his members have just voted to authorize a strike in the movie biz. And criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman has serious reservations about the B.C. government's Bill 17 and its impact on your rights in traffic court. So, let's get started. And it is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. He wrote uh, just over a year ago, Canada's exclusion from the AUKUS Security Pact reveals a failing national defense policy. That was a deal uh, struck between Australia, Britain, and the United States, uh, known as AUKUS, that uh, alliance. And a, a year or so ago, they were talking about nuclear submarines. At the, at the time, Canada was not invited to join. The government of Canada said, well, we're not really in the submarine. Marine business, no big deal. Well, uh, now we have another AUKUS arrangement between the United States, Australia, and Britain. This time, they're focusing on hypersonic weapons. And once again, Canada has been deliberately excluded. To dig into the whys, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is a professor of defense studies at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto. We find him, however, this weekend in Helsinki, Finland, quarantined in a hotel room. Professor Mitchell, Paul, good morning, sir, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, tell us a little bit about your predicament in Finland. You tested positive, and uh, as I understand it, you're just at the tail end of a quarantine period. Yeah, we, uh, I was over here with a group of students from the Canadian Forces College last week um, and probably took an ill-advised trip to Estonia on a ferry that was packed uh, full of people um, and tested positive on uh, on uh, the following day when I got back. Uh, thankfully, I'm not symptomatic, so it, it's just been a minor inconvenience to me. And and there are worse places to be uh, to, to be stuck in in the world. Well, I'm just going to say it's not exactly hell on earth now, is it? So, Paul, while while we're there and, and we're talking Helsinki, before we dig into the nuts and bolts of AUKUS, Finland, uh, if you could give us a moment here, Professor Mitchell, on the status of Finland and NATO, because up until now, Finland has not joined NATO, a lot of that due to enormous pressure from Russia to do just that, to stay out. But as I understand it, Sweden is also not a member, but as I understand it, in the wake of the Ukrainian crisis, both Sweden and Finland are seriously contemplating joining NATO. What's the status this weekend? We, uh, the call was here about 10 years ago, and it was, it's remarkable in the shift in political attitudes here. When, when we were here last uh, just shortly after the um, uh, the invasion of Crimea, uh, they had begun to talk about uh, NATO, but there still was a lot of hesitation within the Finnish population uh, about membership. Uh, that's completely switched around. Uh, it's uh, trending. The, the the public opinion here is trending uh, in the high 50 percent, low 60 percent range. Uh, there's tremendous amount of support for Ukraine evident on the streets mm-hmm. here in Helsinki. Right. Um, and and um, I think the Finns themselves uh, have a strong resonance, given the fact uh, with with the situation, given the fact that not only are they neighbors of Russia, uh, but Russia invaded them uh, in in the, uh, the, the uh, at the beginning of World War Two. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of sympathy for uh, amongst the Finns for what is going on in in uh, Ukraine at the present time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'd be surprised uh, in the coming years or so that we see uh, Finnish membership uh, being proposed by the Finns to to NATO. Uh, they bring a lot to the table militarily. They um, uh, in terms of their 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 uh, local capability, uh, the Finns take a lot of um, they they take their defense very seriously. They're, they're a conscript army made up of reservists, but that duty is part of the sort of model of Finnish citizenship. Uh-huh. And, uh, it's, it's highly popular uh, with, with, with Finns, and, and they proudly serve uh, their, their military duty. So it's a very capable military, uh, and I suspect if Russia wanted to take a poke at, at Finland, 
uh, they'd probably get the same response as what they're getting in, in Ukraine. Um, and the Finns note to us that many of the battalion um, tactical groups that, that were arrayed against them on the border uh, are now in Ukraine and are considerably lower strength than where they were two months ago. So they're very happy with the Ukrainians for that that outcome as well. Interesting. I'm just going to pick up, Paul, on one thing that you said in terms of your description of the Finns and their attitudes towards their military. You said they take their military seriously. Well, in this country, we don't. At least our leadership doesn't. And uh, to our great chagrin, we see a second arrangement between uh, Western superpowers, Britain, the United States, and Australia, allies all, uh, a second Mm -hmm. arrangement, a defense arrangement, this time around hypersonic weapons. And again, Canada has been deliberately excluded, I think, and it's just a personal theory, because we don't take our military seriously. Seriously enough, and everybody knows. What's your theory, Paul? Um, I, I, I tend to agree that, that Canadians uh, don't think about the Canadian Armed Forces very often. Uh, and when they do, it's, it's normally in, in terms of a response to national de- disasters and, and so on. Sure. Um, the, the, I, I would take a little bit of an issue in terms of blaming political leadership. Uh, pol- parties of, uh, of uh, or, uh, politicians of all parties. Uh, I think share uh, a similar disregard uh, for for the Canadian forces, and they take their cues from Canadians. The fact of the matter is, is with uh, Canada is a country that is surrounded by three oceans and and has its southern bo- border uh, guarded by a, a superpower. Right. Uh, and this gives Canadians a, a a sense of security that's not unlike living in a gated community. And when you live in a gated community, you you tend not to invest in in alarms for your own uh, for your own house. So, so um, it, 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 I, I do think I would agree with you that that we don't uh, think too often or seriously about uh, our own national defense. Uh, but I think that's a, a condition that extends uh, across the, uh, the, the the political spectrum, um, and is is uh, is one that it originates within uh, our, the, the, the geography of our country. You know, when quite- you compare that with Australia, for mm-hmm. example which is in the middle, you know, uh, surrounded by uh, countries that, that are often uh, hostile to it, uh, has uh, China, uh, you know, growing as a power uh, and is separated from uh, the, uh, the allies that it has cooperated with since the, uh, the, the Second World War. Uh, they have to take their defense much, much more seriously. Uh, it, it shows in terms of the kind of investments that Australia has been making uh, in its defense forces for, for the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. Well, and, and again, I'm just picking up on uh, the Canadian sentiment. And to, to, to your point about uh, politicians and parties, governments of all political persuasions being equally uh, disdainful of our military, of honoring our military commitments, I agree. Uh, the conservatives were almost as neglectful uh, as, as the liberals have proven to be time and time again. But, Paul, I think, again, you described us as surrounded on three sides by water and the bottom end is defended by a superpower. We're kind of, well, kind of relaxed about this. Uh, since the end of uh, World War II, we've kind of been, we made it through the Cold War because the, the next door neighbors had more nukes than the other guys. So we become kind of complacent. Wouldn't you agree? I, I, I totally agree with you uh, on, on, on that. Uh, we've been able to shed um, capability through uh, the, the gradual diminution of of the defense po- uh, the defense budget since the, uh, the the early 1960s, we've lost fundamental you know uh, large capabilities uh, like long range artillery, uh, air air defense. Uh, for a while there, it looked like we were going to lose tanks. Uh, we've lost aircraft carriers. There's just a whole series of uh, of of capability uh, that has been shed progressively. Uh, over the last 40 or 50 years right. uh, by, by the Canadian forces. Right. And, and, uh, to, and now, of course, it's, it's a moment of reckoning because all of a sudden, for the first time in quite some time, we are in a, in a global uh, situation whereby uh, the West could become involved. And all of a sudden, there's a, a fair bit of reckoning going on amongst the NATO alliance, for example. And once again, we find ourselves behind the eight ball just in terms of being a nation that honors its 
its NATO commitments for basic basic minimum defense spending. We're still uh, behind the pack on that one. And it's noticeable to everyone, isn't it? Yeah, well, the I think you're referring to the um, uh, the two percent figure, and, exactly. and it is true. It is true that Canada ranks very near the bottom of the league tables in terms of uh, in terms of the NATO two percent guideline. Uh, I'm looking at some t- 2021 figures right here, and we're at one point. We were at one point three nine percent. The the government's um, uh, announcements in recent days aim to hit. 1.5 right. uh, with uh, by 2026, I believe. Um, the, the the big thing, though, that one has to be careful about these fi- these figures, um, and this goes for true for for all the NATO partners, is there's a lot of fudge built into them. Mm. Uh, they include things like pensions. They include often they include uh, commitments to uh, security organizations like uh, the Communications and Security Establishment, which guards the cyber security of Canada and is it reports the, the the Minister of Defense but it isn't part of DND right uh, you know there there are issues like that and the other thing I think is really important and and this is a shout out to my my colleagues my uniform colleagues Canada has been very very active uh, in NATO in in recent years uh, it led missions uh, in Kandahar in um, in Afghanistan. Uh, it's one of the principal partners for the enhanced forward presence uh, 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 contributions in in the Baltics. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, committed forces to the air policing missions. We we've currently got two ships on NATO deployment right now uh, in support of um, uh, of, of uh, the reassurance to to Ukraine, uh, and a whole six pack of CF-18s flew over to uh, the the Netherlands for uh, an air operation there. So we're Just doing what we, we can. Getting rid- we're doing what we can. That's right. Uh, it, it is. It is a big drain. All of these things are an enormous drain on the Canadian forces. And I'd say one of the principal issues that we have right now is actually a lack of people. All right. Uh, we're down about ten thousand people in the Canadian forces right now. Um, and when when there was this flood of volunteers uh, deciding they wanted to go fight for for Ukraine, I thought, geez, it would be so much better if you would just just join, join the, the army for crying out loud. We're joined on the line by Dr. Paul Mitchell from Helsinki, Finland. Professor Mitchell is uh, teaches defense studies at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto. He's uh, on assignment, so to speak, uh, in in Finland. In fact, friends, he's on his last day of quarantine, had a positive COVID test, and missed the bus with the rest of the group he was traveling with. Our guest wrote this, or at least, Paul, this is a quote attributed to you in the National Post yesterday. Quote, Canada has skated on thin ice so far this century. It's avoided confronting the erosion of its strategic defense. We can continue to drag our heels, but eventually the bill will come due when our government commits our forces to a mission they can no longer fulfill because we thought we didn't need to concern ourselves with the health of the military close quote did the post get it right sir uh yeah that was me uh i said that uh, back in i think it was october last year uh it is something that concerns me uh, greatly because the uh the uh there's a tremendous use in in committing canadian forces for foreign policy and security goals um the the uh, the, the, the military does do a very rigorous risk assessment uh, when when they when they make uh, commitments uh, overseas, uh, but the political pressure uh, in in uh, future contingencies might might be I- extraordinarily high. Uh, and the example that I think of in in terms of history uh, is the commitment of the 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 battalion of soldiers that that went to Hong Kong uh, at the the outset of World War II, right. uh, who were completely uh, ill prepared and, and unarmed. For the conditions and fighting there, and and uh, essentially went and 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 uh, were, were either killed in in the battle for Hong Kong, uh, or many of them died in uh, prisoner of war camps in in Japan, uh, following uh, following the, the collapse of the defense in, in Hong Kong. Those sorts of things I worry about con- uh, considerably. Uh, that uh, that Canada will not be able to resist political pressure to to making commitments. Uh, and and that we won't have the 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 kind of resources that are necessary 
uh, for them to, uh, to, to, to conduct their operations in, in an effective manner. Indeed, I visited that cemetery in Hong Kong, Professor Mitchell, and it's quite a profound place to visit and quite a lesson to be taken from it. Uh, you, you, you spoke very favorably uh, moments ago before the news, Paul, about the, the degree to which Canadians serving in our military this weekend are deployed around the globe, doing their job to the utmost of their professional ability and so on. I don't know that the people of Canada Canada have any mistrust or uh, any apprehensions about the quality of, of uh, people serving in the military and their dedication to their mission. What, 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 where we kind of part ways or hit the fork in the road is the fact that our military seems to be largely ignored by governments of all persuasions. But then you point to the fact, and I think this is where the circle comes around, the governments think it's okay to or have thought for decades it's okay to to ignore the military and all of that defense spending commitments, money that could be spent on much sexier projects. It's the politicians have been feeling okay to do that ignoring because we've given them permission to do. We keep reelecting them and they keep ignoring the military. That's approval of some description, isn't it? It, 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 it is a, it is a problem in, in the sense that, uh, that, that we don't uh, think uh, about our military in this country uh, and the kind of support that it requires. I think a really good analogy here is the situation that many of our hospitals found themselves in the midst of COVID, uh, where we didn't have enough investment in some of the hospitals. Uh, and then when we really needed those hospitals, uh, they didn't have the capacity and, and we were having to send patients all over the country. Uh, we, we were having to, you know, triage patients mm-hmm. and things like that. That's not a situation you really want to have uh, in terms of the military, uh, because the consequences of a lack of investment when the chips are down uh, are are uh, are, are significant, even even worse in in uh, in that regard. Dr. Mitchell, uh, what has uh, what impact do you think the current crisis in Ukraine is having, not only on the NATO alliance and the European Union, but back here on the other side of the pond? What do you think uh, it, it's doing to alter Canadians' perceptions of our military and our commitment to uh, on our military commitments? Period. I, I think it was really interesting. Um, when the Liberal government announced the F-35 uh, purchase uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that there that that was sort of um, it was almost a non-event uh, that people acknowledged that uh, that that it was past due time to replace the CF-18s. Sure, I think five years ago there would have been that the kind of outrage that that you know followed the the announcement back in 2010. Uh, when the Harper government tried to announce that they were going to purchase the um, uh, the the, the F-35s, um, and there was uh, enormous amounts of hand wringing about the uh, of these of these jets, the fact of the matter is is that modern air combat is is eye-wateringly expensive. Yes, uh, and and you can see, you know, when you don't make those investments in your forces, you 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 get the results uh, that that Russia is currently uh, enjoying. Uh, over the skies in 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 Ukraine, um, a lot of the things that you know we're going to focus uh, probably on really sexy things like F-35s uh, on the the new uh, um, surface uh, combatant ships, uh, you know, and other other big uh, big dollar toys there that that uh, that the military is going to be purchasing. But basic capabilities, and I, I go back to the personnel issue, uh, issues like logistics. Uh, th- those kinds of support things are really super important for for militaries. And again, when those things get ignored uh, because they don't attract as much uh, political attention, or 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 uh, uh, then then uh, uh, militaries can really pay a, a, a significant price in uh, in terms of operational impact. Uh, when those those systems fail or not are, are not available. Mm. Uh, Professor Mitchell, we don't have all the time in the world left to us, and I'd like to just draw on your experience as an educator at the Canadian Forces College, your 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 knowledge of military and military history. Uh, as you're in Helsinki, Finland, near the Baltic states, there are Canadian troops uh, in those uh, in one of those states at least this weekend. Uh, there are other Canadians scattered around Europe, and the world is looking at Ukraine, the European 
European Union and NATO. The no-fly zone issue keeps being brought up by President Zelensky. Uh, how do you think this is going to play out, Paul? Because uh, it, it, there, there is a risk, and Putin is playing it to the max of escalating into a, a, a global confrontation nobody wants, and yet Russia must be brought to bear. So how do you think it's going to play out? It's it's difficult to know, and and I I am not one who tries to make predictions about the future. People who say they can see what's going to happen next are usually lying. Uh, but I I'm I'm a little bit concerned uh, in terms of where this is going. Uh, the Ukrainians have had a major major victory uh, in the past week, uh, basically forcing the, the 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 Russians to withdraw from around the Kievan. Uh, they mauled that uh, the, the the vaunted Russian army uh, considerably in the last month and a half. Yes, uh, and and it, it, they, they've done a great job. But next steps, uh, I think, are going to be very dangerous in terms of uh, where the Russians, if they're able to hold on to the eastern parts of uh, Luhansk and, and the uh, the Donbass area, mm-hmm. uh, create a land bridge to Crimea the kind of negotiations that may take place in the next few weeks. And we see in, you know, the potential of cracks in the alliance with, with potentially um, uh, a Le Pen uh, victory in, in France. France yes. Somebody who is, who has uh, been, been very pro Putin in the past. Uh, so I, I worry about that. And, and Putin retains the Trump card, which is nuclear weapons. Uh, if, if he is backed into a corner uh, all bets are off yep. as to whether he actually uses those or not. Indeed. It's a pretty tense time for the world. Dr. Mitchell, we are very appreciative of yours this weekend, despite the fact that you really couldn't do much else being quarantined and all. <laughs> but it's very kind of you to take a, a, a considerable chunk of your Saturday uh, and spend it with us here in Vancouver. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Here's a quote from an article written by our next guest. The general inflation rate is at its highest since 1991. This underpins serious concerns for food security as food, energy, gas, and housing prices soar. When faced with skyrocketing food prices, some shoppers, understandably, suspect retailers of greed and taking advantage of inflation to raise prices. Skepticism of the food industry will likely increase. Yet, we must be careful before judging too quickly. This is part of an article entitled The Delicate Balance Between Grocery Store Profit and Food Security, available at theconversation.com and co-authored by Sylvain Charlebois and our next guest, Janet Music, a researcher at Dalhousie University, a member of the crack team at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. Janet Music joins us from Halifax. Janet, thank you for joining us and good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, you and Sylvain put this article out. Uh, the, doc, the doc has been with us on, on the show a few times talking about uh, inflation as it has been escalating over the past few months. It's great to, that you're with us today. And, and you go on to say that um, price profits rather are smaller than you might think. Because as you say, oh man, a lot of the, I mean, you go to the grocery store and as uh, Phil and I were talking about this, you know, you go to the grocery store this weekend, some things cost more than they did last weekend, Janet. I mean, it's going up in some areas ridiculously quickly. And so you're right. A lot of us go, oh, come on. There's some serious gouging going on here. We're being taken advantage of. And yet you maintain profits are smaller than we might think. Tell us more. Well, it's interesting, you know, because retailers or grocery stores are really at the forefront of price increases. But really, they're the messengers in some cases. Not to say that they don't raise their prices to increase their profit. They absolutely do that. Sure. But remember, they're at the end of a very complex food supply chain. And so, you know, you also have manufacturers, you have shipping, you have uh, farmers, and all of those people along the supply chain also had increased costs for production. And so it just kind of compounds. So by the time you're picking it up off the shelf or out of the freezer, 
you're, you know, you're really paying for increased costs for a lot of stops along the supply chain. And I suppose, Janet, too, the other part about it that's most uncomfortable, especially when you're in the dairy section going, really, you want that much for this cheese? Get out of here. But I, the, the tendency is to just sort of immediately accuse whoever is selling you the stuff of, of just taking advantage of the situation. But at the same time, you also, we have also come to understand how interconnected the global supply chain is and where this question leads janet is ukraine uh the current crisis in ukraine has affected the global supply chain already in trouble even more so that means with the with the supply chain in more jeopardy prices are likely to go up before they go down again aren't they that's right and so it's kind of the third wave of of kind of impact because, you know, we had COVID-19, which was really disruptive kind of in the early months of the of the pandemic. So if you're thinking February, March, April, before we really knew, you know, if the food was able to cross the border, mm-hmm. if people, you know, if shipping, you know, was able to continue. And then, of course, you know, you have climate change, which is this huge overarching, uh, you know, impending crisis that is affecting just the amount of food that we can harvest uh, because of adverse weather effects. And then, you know, you kind of have the great so-called resignation. And so people are leaving the shipping industry or they're leaving the retail industry or Mm -hmm. service industry. And then finally, you know, we get, you know, we think we're seeing in the clear, you know, we've got good forecasts, lots of moisture out west this year, you know, and and COVID kind of winding down. And then, of course, we have a war, right? And so, you know, we just can't catch a break, it seems, you know, although I would say we can finger point when it comes to the war in the Ukraine. But for the rest of it, you know, it's kind of uh, a global issue, but you're right. So the war in the Ukraine, the Ukraine and Russia are responsible for about 25 to 30 percent of wheat. That's right. So, yeah. So, you know, we do produce a lot of wheat here in Canada and and, and we won't probably see a shortage, but our, our, our costs will go up, right? As we and, Cana- you know, Canadian farmers are trying to feed uh, or fill in the gaps where the Ukraine would probably be selling their wheat. But, you know, of more importance, I think, is the fact that fertilizer or the inputs of fertilizer come from Russia and the Ukraine. And so we're thinking potash and nickel and and phosphates. And, you know, that affects everything that grows out of the ground. And so it just remains to be seen. You know, I think a lot of people are holding their breath to see how expensive fertilizers are going to be this growing season exactly and 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 of course at the end of the season there's also going to be the, the speculation about the, the grains we have fertilizer in abundance in vancouver in vancouver in canada we have potash in saskatchewan especially uh, and and lots of lots of we we used to call ourselves the bread basket of the world i recall in high school uh, but you know we're not quite that but we're certainly uh, capable of producing a lot uh, the the concern here though i, I would think is the cost because if, if, if we're certainly, suppose we have a fantastic bumper year on the prairies and, and turn out wheat like we haven't seen in decades, we're st- it's still going to be more expensive to purchase because of that lack of production in another part of the world, isn't it? That's right. And that, so that's what we're going to see, I think, in Canada. We're not going to be short. Certainly, there are areas of the globe that are going to be short. So, you know, that get from the Ukraine or Russia, like the Middle East. So, you know, it's going to be tough times for certain parts of the globe. In Canada, not so much. We're very, very fortunate. Um, but you're right. So costs are going to increase. We already think that they're increasing you know, well above what they should be normally, and uh, it's not going to slow down. So what does that mean for most of us? You know, a lot more disposable income is going to go uh, towards food. Yeah. So we're going to have to cut cut in other areas if you can. Uh, otherwise, more of us are going to be food insecure as prices keep rising. It's not really a good news story. I mean, we're talking about the delicate balance between grocery store profit and food security. That's an article at theconversation.com, co-written by Sylvain Charlebois and our guest Janet Music, who is a PhD researcher at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, working with Dr. Charlebois at Dalhousie University in Halifax. And uh, Janet, just before the break, I alluded to something that we need 
need to talk about because you address the notion of con- consumer cynicism in these inflationary times. People go to the grocery store and go, oh, look at this. It wasn't this last weekend. Come on. We're getting ripped off here. And, and some of the cynicism comes from, well, something we all clearly remember. They had a, a, an incident about, what, five years ago, Janet? The bread cartel. Ten companies were accused of fixing the price of a, a staple like bread for, for 20 years. So what was the outcome of that? Because we all remember the details of going in. There were all of this price-fixing allegations going on. What was the outcome? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, consumers come by the cynicism honestly, for sure. And so, uh, you know, I think most people can remember the 20, or maybe not, you know, the $25 gift certificate that Loblaw sent oh, to everybody. right, you know? of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forgot yeah. about that part. So, and, you know, you sign on the dotted line, you take your 25 bucks, and then there's no class action lawsuit or whatever, <laughs> That's right? That's right, so, right. Very clever you know, legal dodge. you, you got to give them that. The legal department came through with flying colors on that one now, didn't they? That's right. And, you know, there was, and, and you know, actually this was just in the news. So an investigation by the Competition Bureau of Canada that was looking into it. But it's very difficult to prove you know, if, if people aren't aren't going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, we only really know because the law of law is actually admitted to it. So, you know, it would only be speculation otherwise. But, you know, now things are brewing that it's actually happening in the beef industry, the same thing. And yes. so, yeah, so what is going to come of that? It's It's going to be hard to say because... You know, on one hand, it feels like, well, you're gouging. But on the other hand, you have, you know, hardworking farmers who actually do have, uh, you know, increasing prices to produce, uh, you know, beef or cuts of beef Mm -hmm. that are outside of their control. Right. So climate change and gas prices and supply chain. Right. And so. It's very, very difficult to prove, and so not much has happened uh, to the participants of the, you know, so-called bread cartel. So, you know, when you're a consumer and you know this, and you think, well, oh my goodness, well, you know, these people are just trying to steal from us in these very hard times. Yeah. But, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not here to champion retailers, but you know, I would point out that you know they were excellent during the COVID-19 lockdowns. You know, they were one of the few spaces that remained open. Mm -hmm. They pivoted, uh, you know, almost in a weekend where safety became number one priority during the, the pandemic. So, you know, less shoppers, more security, more safety, and all of that had a cost as well, right? So... Yes, absolutely. People have a right to be cynical about retailers because they do, you know, behave in ways that perhaps are not, uh, you know, legal. I would, you know, I hesitate to say that, but maybe quasi-legal. I don't know what, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Right, but Janet, you also go on to say in Canada we have a fairly well-run food retail business, but... The lack of competition in the country often invites criticism. We only have five big players in the whole shooting country. Empire Sobeys, Loblaws, Metro, Costco, and Walmart. So that's basically the the group of five that controls 90% of the food distribution in this country. So what can that group do collectively to make life, well, a little easier for us in in these trying times? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point, because I think, especially food retailers, because as as humans, it's not like we can forego buying food, you know, you can forego a lot of things, maybe you don't need a new iPhone, maybe you don't need a new car, mm-hmm. but you absolutely need to eat, yep. and so... There is actually room for these big five to be better community members. You know, we don't tend to think about uh, corporations as community members, but they're a big part of our lives, so they absolutely have a role to play. And Metro, which is uh, not out east, I'm not sure, uh, I know they're in Quebec, we talk about them in Quebec, but Mm -hmm. they were re-kind of investing their profits to kind of, pick up the slack inflationary wise for people so that it wasn't food prices weren't rising so high. You know, I don't know how, how many shareholders would be on board for that, you know, year over year, but certainly there is absolutely room for retailers to kind of absorb some of those inflationary prices in the short term. Right. 
for sure. Janet, yeah. a, a comment for, for your comment, if you would, an email from Jim as we're speaking here says, Hi, Sterling, perhaps it's time to quit growing corn for ethanol and put those fields back into food grains production. How about that? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's so complicated, right? Because agriculture is such a large part of our GDP as a country. Mm. And, and we're not just feeding Canadians, we're feeding the world. And the system is, is very complicated, like I say. And so, you know, farmers, they want to get a good return on investment as well. It's a very difficult job. And so, you know you're gonna you're gonna grow the thing that makes you the most profit and and you know maybe it's time for the government to step in and start subsidizing some of these other you know plants or crops that go to feeding people, but it's certainly not going to happen you know in in a week or in a month. That is something that takes a little bit of time uh, because growing food is is takes time and so. I think that's a fair point and and something that needs to be talked about. It needs to be at the national kind of conversation. Yeah, good job, Jim. Appreciate that. Uh, Janet, we only have a minute left. So in the short term, nobody's going to do anything except just stock the shelves and we're left to our own devices to buy what we want. So any hints beyond coupons, which uh, aren't necessarily uh, a dinosaur relic from the past, they still matter. Uh, Any other just consumer tips in our remaining few seconds? here or to just get us through this and still stay fed well you know i am trying to find the good news story and i think you know now that covid19 is starting to wind down in a lot of places it's time to share the food with the people you love uh you know and kind of make the most of what's in your fridge and stop you know wasting food and start eating your leftovers and just sharing what you have uh because it matters that social connection that we have with food and the people we love that we haven't really seen in, mm-hmm. a, in a long time. You know, stretch it, stretch it that way. But absolutely, you're right. Couponing is <laughs> couponing has saved our households. For it's, sure. It still matters, doesn't it, Janet? Thanks so much for doing with us uh, this with us this morning. It's great to have you aboard. Uh, regards to Sylvain as well, and I commend your article, "The Delicate Balance Between Grocery Store Profit and Food Security," to our listeners. It's available at theconversation.com. Janet Music, thanks very much. Thank you. This story is certainly a big one for British Columbia to the tune of several billion dollars a year. It was all over CKNW yesterday. An overwhelming majority of BC Directors Guild of Canada members have voted yes to a potential strike after year-long negotiations with producers broke down. Of the eligible members, over 86% of them cast a ballot. And of that group, over 92% voted in favor of a strike mandate. We found this out yesterday morning. The Guild's BC branch represents 1,700 creative and logistical personnel in our film and television industry. And here to talk about it is Alan Harmon, the BC District Chairperson for the Directors Guild of Canada. Mr. Harmon, Alan, good morning and welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's nice to be here, Sterling. It's uh, nice to be. Uh, it's surreal, to, you know, to be on your show uh, instead of driving around in my car listening to it, which is what I normally would be doing. Well, I appreciate the patronage, Alan, very much. No, no problem there. Tell us a little bit yeah. more about uh, the, the rationale behind the strike. A ninety-two percent in favor is a pretty convincing number. That's a pretty united front you're presenting, Alan. What's the backstory here? Well, you know, and thank you, Phil, for or Sterling, for having me on the show to discuss this issue. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to say thank you to that 92 percent and actually to everyone who was involved, even those folks who didn't vote for it. And it was less than 7 percent. Uh, you got the numbers absolutely spot on. You know, of our membership, close to 1900 people that are allowed to vote. We had a turnout of 86 percent. You mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that's a landslide. And, and within that 86 percent that actually weighed in, 92 percent, as you also mentioned, voted in favor of a strike mandate. So what we have with a strike mandate is, uh, and, and I'm so thankful to them as members. I just want to say that uh, in this opportunity that I have to talk to you and, and into the media. Um, you know, they're, they're a wonderful group of people, you know, by and large. And uh, we just want to get the word out there that, you know, our goal is to reach a deal and, and to not have to necessarily take everyone out on strike, right. you know, whatever that, whatever that picture would look at, look like when we're done with it, we want to basically reach a deal, you know, for these members. 
Right. Now, there is something in place right now, Alan, that also needs to be included in the conversation, and that is a standing agreement between the industry uh, and and uh, British Columbia government. It's called a safe harbor labor agreement. Explain what that means, please. Yeah, we uh, we have our hands tied. You know, uh, it's it's uh, it's not as simple for the film industry as it is for some of the other industries because because of safe harbor, right? It's an agreement that uh, the BC Labor Board put uh, over uh, you know our business and with the producers' involvement, um, so that we're unlike other employers in the province. Film productions in BC have uh, the productions themselves have protection from job action because. Um, because of the labor board mandating that negotiating producers and the unions enter into these safe harbor agreements. Okay. The, you know, the purpose of the agreements is to ensure that productions continue to come to BC while we're collective bargaining. So productions that sign a safe harbor agreement prior to a strike notice, and that's not what we just did. We didn't, we just didn't take a strike notice. We took a vote right. uh, for strike, strike authorization. But if we were to issue a strike notice, and, and, you know, uh, and up until that time, any productions that comply with the terms, they're protected from labor disruption. Ties our hands a little bit. Right. So, Alan, though, really, uh, as, as I understand uh, labor strategy, organized labor strategy in general, one takes a strike vote, one has a convincing outcome, uh, therefore saying that the next step would be if you were to call for strike action because of the significant support for the strike vote in the first place. This is a, a strong bargaining tool going into another round of negotiations. Uh, the idea being not to bring the industry to a halt, but to increase the pressure to get the uh, outcome done. So what's the response been from the from other players on the field? I know the, the numbers are fresh, they're less than 24 hours old, but have you heard anything back from other players in the industry with respect to this, this, this rather striking number? Well, we had uh, full support yesterday from the DGA in America. They're the sister organization. We're the Directors Guild of Canada. Right. They're the Directors Guild of America. Uh, they came out in full 100% uh, uh, unsolicited support um, yesterday and, uh, and urged the AMPTP, the Producers Association uh, in the States, and the Canadian Motion Picture Association up here in Canada, whom we bargained with, urged them to get back to the table immediately and to get this situation resolved. Um, they're 100% in, in favor of, uh, of our membership. And so there's, there's one, you know, elephant in the room heard from. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, regard, with regard to the other side of the table, you know, we just announced this yesterday. So sure. I believe that they do need some time in order to, you know, get their ducks in a row and get back to us. Uh, and our hope sincerely is that they get back to us to say, listen, we got to get back to the table. You know, you know, Sterling, we have bargained in good faith for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. We've never been we've never been down this road ever on either side. Right. We've always gotten, you know, if we've needed to go into additional length of time beyond the, the expiration of a contract, it would be a month, two months at the most in order to hammer out the specific details. We're over a year without a contract. That's just not conscionable. We can't we can't do anything else at this point but to get a mandate uh, for the potential for striking from our membership and show that as a, a, a solid uh you know, confirmation of the fact that our members feel they need to be treated respectfully and to and to gain fairness in the contract and to be able to work in, frankly, safer environments, right? Right. Now, I'd like you to comment on something, a quote attributed in today's Vancouver Sun, attributed to a colleague of yours over at the Directors Guild, Kendry Upton, uh, who says, uh, the, well, there's, when he talks about hypocrisy in what appears to be studio and production companies launching diversity hiring programs, but fighting against fair wages and treatment for entry-level employees, those are the very jobs in which new industry entrants from all walks of life and all backgrounds will begin. They all have to start somewhere. And it's usually at the ground floor, isn't it? That's exactly right. You know, and Kendra's right. Uh, that is one of our messages. Uh, that would apply, uh, you know, to, in terms of the, you know, where we're out, why we, why we have separation in terms of the, the negotiations. One of the points would be, um, you know, they would like to claw back from the existing agreement language that would, when we have a, a minimum wage increase, which we're about to go through right. soon, then the you know the the contract we're fighting for and the issues we're fighting for are really all for the scale players and by scale we mean you know 
close to minimum wage, if not minimum wage for some of them, depending on the hours they work, right? So you're talking about people that are making the least amount of money on a film set. Now, if they claw back this, uh, this language, which we already have, whereby minimum wage drives that number up, if they claw back, uh, you know, the next category, and I'll, I'll compare, uh, you know, a production assistant with a third assistant director, let's say. Now, if you've been a third assistant director, you've probably worked 600, 700 days to get to that position. Right. You've seen an increase in pay. If you're a production assistant, it's possible you've only done 150 days on your logbook to become an associate member, to become a production assistant member. Now, if you're going to get an increase in pay and you don't get an increase in pay as the third AD and those two rates start to go together, where is the incentive for people to even enter the industry where that rung, those two bottom rungs of, of the pay scale are put so closely together, there isn't a distinction between the work uh, that they do. And it's, it's not fair. And that's one of the you've just highlighted. And what Kendry is pointing to is one of the one of the points that separate us in the current uh, negotiating. Ellen, one, the one thing that impresses everyone, and of course, it's in, they're, they're shooting. I'm on the 21st floor here at the TD Tower. CBS is shooting a pilot up on 27. There are trucks all over the neighborhood this morning. And no matter where you go around Metro Vancouver, anywhere this weekend, you're going to bump into a film shoot of some kind. And the first thing you notice is, holy cow, look at all the people. It's really a labor intensive industry, isn't it? It is, and you mentioned the you know the billions. We're over three billion dollars, I think, in in terms of uh, you know the business. We're meaningful in that regard to uh, uh, you know to the province, and the numbers that that are being posted uh, that make us meaningful are being posted you know primarily on the labor side. Right. Right. I mean, we ha- we have you know if you live in a certain part of town within two blocks, you're going to probably run into a film worker on their day off having coffee at the same place you are. You know, everybody around all of metropolitan Vancouver, from downtown out to Chilliwack and beyond, um, have got film employees that you can associate with, that you can be neighbors to, that you can, uh, you know, raise your kids next to as they raise their kids. Mm. We're in the com- we're in the community, as you said, and uh, you know that that's that's who we are. That's uh, our identity. We're uh, Vancouverites. Alan, are you, uh, final question to you, and we're grateful for your time on a Saturday morning. Thanks ever so much for doing this. Are you optimistic, somewhat optimistic, pessimistic as to the way this is going to play out? You've been bargaining in good faith for a while. Uh, nothing has happened. Now you've taken this strike uh, vote. You have uh, another arrow in the quiver, so to speak. Are you confident this thing can be resolved? Well, you know, it is a tough question because here I am a single a voice, you know, there's a lot of players and there's a lot of moving parts in a contract, you know, when you're negotiating. But, uh, you know, we've, we've managed to always get to a contract. I can't imagine us without one for much longer. So, you know, I think to answer your question, Sterling, I'm going to say that, yes, I am confident. We, we are going to get this resolved. Uh, I think it's a question of when do we get it resolved. And from the uh, viewpoint uh, of the uh, Directors Guild of Canada, the BC District Council, we want that to be soon. We want that to be really soon. We don't want to disrupt the climate uh, of labor in this uh, province. We don't want to disrupt uh, our business and our industry. Uh, We want to work. We were one of the first uh, uh, industries to come back to work uh, during COVID. You know, I don't know how much time you got with me, Sterling, but I can tell you a short story. You know, when COVID happened March 13th, two years ago, uh, I was on a production. I was in casting. I went on hold. I was back at work in the middle of June after running a task force that figured out, uh, with the help of the government, mm. how to get how back to get to it work, done. Yeah, how to get it done safely. We came back. We filled the pipeline full of content. We have done record amounts of business. Yes, we want to continue to do that. Uh, we need the producers to come back to the table and get this job done with us. Alan Harmon, thanks ever so much for doing this with us this morning. We wish you considerable success in your negotiations, and we'll touch base with you as this thing continues. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sterling. Have a great day, man. Uh, you too. Saw this column in the Georgia Strait the other day. Bill 17's changes to traffic court add up to a brazen denial of due process and access to justice. The commentary was written by Vancouver criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman, who joins us this morning to talk a little bit more about Bill 17. Sarah, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. That's good to have you with us. Tell us more about Bill 17, otherwise known as the Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act. 
Sure. Well, this bill was kind of very quietly tabled by David Eby a couple of weeks ago, and it's now on to its second reading, so it's moving quickly. Um, What it does is it seeks to overhaul the traffic court system, and in doing so, it uses some pretty overly broad language that will give the government a lot of power when it comes to how traffic court matters proceed, who can attend these dispute hearings, and who will preside over them as well. Okay, so now, how is this going to affect? The typical process is you get a ticket, and if you want to dispute your ticket, you get your date in court. The officer who issued you the ticket frequently shows up and says why, uh, subject to cross-examination, then the, the case is ruled upon, and there's an outcome. How would this particular process, Sarah, be adversely affected? Yeah, that's exactly right. So then if we have this bill passed, what we're likely going to see is a lot of these different proceedings move online to an online forum, uh, which raises some concerns about access to justice and due process, in my opinion. Uh, And we may also see justice of the peace um, eliminated rather altogether from the process. So we could see those people subbed in for, say, adjudicators who don't have any specific legal training, for example. And finally, we could see people like lawyers being excluded from the process as well. So disputants may no longer have their right to counsel uh, when they're dealing with traffic ticket matters. Now, clearly, a lot of people listening are going, aha, the lawyers are upset because they might lose some fees on all of this. And and so there's sort of a self-serving column this woman has written. Uh, And I suppose to a certain extent it is, but there's also the matter of due process. And Sarah, that's something that, frankly, Canadian cherish and how is it threatened so dramatically with this new bill we have to remember that your right to counsel is your right so if you want to self-represent in traffic court of course you're entitled to do that but lots of people have uh, big things hanging on the line in traffic court and so uh, they for whatever reasons choose to have a lawyer help them whether it's because they don't understand the process they're not comfortable you know that's their personal right and that's their decision and it's something that is also uh, gestured at in the charter of rights here in this country so it's an important aspect of our judicial system lawyers help people navigate the system they help them uh, in terms of their interests and their rights Uh, they know what to do when it comes to trial Uh, so they assist people in a manner that in my view is indispensable Right. Now, yeah, I'm quoting from the article you wrote in The Strait. Indeed, the right to counsel is an important facet of our justice system, so much so, in fact, that it is a charter protected right upon arrest or detention. So if this right is strangely denied through this new British Columbia legislation, is it a safe bet, Sarah, that there will be a charter challenge to it almost immediately upon third reading and royal assent? Well, I think any time laws change, we can expect that there will be challenges to them, no matter what the subject matter of the law is. Uh, in some way, someone's going to find a way to challenge it. But this isn't unprecedented either. We need to look at the IRP scheme, which deals with impaired driving in this province, for another example of how the government has moved certain courtroom proceedings online and eliminated judges. So this is something that was challenged. It was held to be uh, proper and and lawful. And so this could be another example of that playing out again. Well, I suppose that the part that's most unsettling, as you described the changes to us this morning, Sarah, is this absence of experience in the adjudication or mediation process. In other words, uh, you don't get judges in traffic court as as more frequently you would get a justice of the peace. Still, uh, an adjudicator appointed by the system uh, with, with presumably significant legal experience. So how then would one qualify to become the traffic judge if they're eliminating real judges? And again, that's a huge question and one that I think needs to be answered by our government. And that's one of the big problems with this legislation, in my opinion, is that it is overly broad. It gives the government so much discretion in terms of how these uh, hearings are going to proceed um, and the manner in which they may proceed. And it's, it's really disturbing to think about the kinds of changes they could implement uh, without very much oversight at all. Indeed. And of course, the whole notion of being online, and, and the government is very much hiding behind this, uh, this, this, this facade, because indeed, because of pandemic realities and requirements, we have, through our justice system over the last couple of years, out of pure necessity, moved a lot online that previously didn't exist. So now we have this new dimension to the system that the government clearly plans to exploit. So if that's, the, if that's their 
their their rationale. Well, we're just moving online. We're just moving with the times. Come on now, settle down. There's nothing to see here. And you disagree. I do disagree. And I think that uh, any lawyer who's been practicing through the course of this pandemic will tell you that some proceedings are suitable to go online, uh, but not all. And trials most certainly aren't in the vast majority of circumstances. Uh, the other aspect to consider is that just moving things online doesn't necessarily equate to efficiency. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of problems with going online. And in fact, I prefer to appear in person when possible because we just don't have those communication errors or breakdowns uh, as frequently when you're in person rather than online. And finally, not everybody has access to the tools, the equipment, the skill set that's necessary to do something like this using an online platform. So I think there's something lost when we go online, and we have to be very careful not to compromise due process uh, for the sake of modernization. Yeah, I'm glad I brought this up, Sarah, because, of course, as a criminal defense lawyer practicing for the last couple of years, you have had to pivot out of necessity. And so you have experience at both in-person and online appearances in a judicial court setting. And obviously, you've just said you clearly prefer being uh, live and in-person. Thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of technical malfunctions that can happen. Uh, I recently appeared in the Supreme Court on a matter online, uh, and, you know, our screens froze up three times during the proceeding. Mm. That results in unnecessary delays and interruptions. I mean, these are things that just simply don't happen when you're in person. When, when they talk about the, uh, the nuts and bolts of Bill 17, you say that they talk about moving some some traffic matters out of courtrooms altogether and online exclusively, and yet they don't define what some traffic matters might include. Do you have any suspicions of what might be on that list? Well, I worry about that. And again, that's my huge concern with this bill because it's not specific enough. Uh, We have all kinds of terms that are being used that are overly ambiguous, like some or, you know, who may or must not attend, Mm -hmm. but no definitions. And so it just gives the government, in my view, way too much leeway with respect to how they're going to actually implement this once it's passed. And again, that goes to who sits on the bench to arbitrate all of this. Again, they will be government appointees, won't they? They will be, yes. What about the vetting process? Will that be public? Will there be some transparency, at least, to provide some degree of confidence in the public that these appointees are indeed capable of doing their jobs? And again, another great question, because there's nothing in this bill that indicates, you know, who those people will be, how they'll be trained, if they'll be vetted, uh, what qualifications are required. And so that's a big red flag for me. And it starts to make me really worry that we're going to see judicial justices go by the wayside and ICBC trained and appointed adjudicators uh, supplemented in their in their place. Right. And of course, this is all part of the uh, process that you say is being fairly fast track. It's already received second reading. Uh, Will it go to committee or are they going to forego that and just go directly to third? You know, there really hasn't been much uh, publication about how this bill is progressing. When it was introduced, it was introduced uh, very, very quietly and discreetly, um, which also gives me a concern. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's the red flags. It's it's the uh, it's the in indicators from previous. Uh, this isn't, these people aren't new to the game. They've been around for a while. They do have their tells, as they like to say in cards. And the quieter they are about tabling legislation, the more suspicious we automatically become. And I think it's well founded in this case, Sarah. Well, I definitely agree with you on that. So, uh, what what if anything can be done? Uh, as they go through the process of uh, proclaiming Bill 17? Well, I think it's important for people to be vocal if they are concerned about this, um, to write to your MLA, to contact them, and to let them know that, you know, hey, I have some concerns about this this piece of legislation, and here they are. Um, you know, it might not actually do anything, but I still think it's very important for the public to let the government know that we're watching, we're listening, and we have concerns. Mm-hmm. And this, with this uh, majority government, uh, they uh, certainly have no problems passing legislation. And uh, again, with a comfortable majority, it's also pretty easy to ignore the electorate for a couple of years. And you're suggesting that we, the electorate, choose not to be ignored and let them know we're not real pleased with all of this. I think that it is uh, one of our duties. 
to make sure that the government is held accountable uh, and they know that we are paying attention. The article in the Georgia Strait, friends, it's a good read. Bill 17's changes to traffic court add up to a brazen denial of due process and access to justice. Written by Vancouver criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman. Sarah, thanks ever so much for being with us this morning. Great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.